In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. gentlemen welcome to the true life podcast we are here with an amazing woman mrs carla wolf she's an author she's a writer she has done some work or got her degree from the international institute of integral human sciences i have spoken with her before she's a fascinating human being i think you're really going to enjoy <laughs> this conversation carla how are you today I'm fine. I hope you are. are, are you're having fun overselling me there, but <laughs> it sounds great. I mean, maybe I undersell myself. Who knows? <laughs> right? Yeah, I, I think so. I'm fine. I'm fine. We're, we're, we're approximately, what are we, 5,000 miles apart? So opposite sides um, of the country. Right. So, but we're having nice weather here on the northeast coast of the USA. So, been like spring again typically we'll call this indian summer i think mm, yeah. yeah it's an so, it's an interesting time the yes. way things are happening and i think it's an exciting time to be alive <laughs> you know which which brings me to some of your ideas that i think are fascinating and exciting this okay. idea of neuroplasticity and this idea of how it's almost psychedelic in nature. Like you and I had had a previous <laughs> conversation about neuroplasticity and I, right. I just kind of wanted to give you the floor and, and maybe we maybe you could explain to people, there's a lot of misconceptions what it is. Maybe you can begin with, with what it is according to some well, of the research you've done. You know what? I'm going to ask you first, what, okay. what is your idea about? Cause that will, I think you telling me what your idea about neuroplasticity is, will, will give me some context as to, you know, what you've been listening to other people about concerning neuroplasticity. So um, then we could go along those lines. Yeah. Okay. okay. What would you Perfect. like to say about neuroplasticity? Well, 
first off, it's an amazing question. And, and I'm going to do my best to give you my, I don't know if I quite have the vocabulary to describe it, but I'm going to give it my best shot here. So, right. Okay. It's, That's cool. Yeah. It seems to me that neuroplasticity is the way in which we see the world. And I think as our decisions change, mm -hmm. as our experience change, so too does the neural pathways in our brain begin to change. Right. And I, I think sometimes through tragedy, from what I have right. read, and my right. personal experience is the most significant part of neuroplasticity. I, I would like to believe I can read books and, and change it that way and stuff, but it seems to me the only giant lasting significant changes in my life have either been through real tragedy or trauma yeah. or you know nights. I would love to say more positive things, and maybe they do change that way, but it, it really seems to me tragedy has been the only way that is fundamentally shifted the way I think. And so yeah, that's, that would be it. That's hard. I mean, that's, uh, I, I wouldn't, I would refrain from saying uh, to people anything that went along the lines of, um, well, you, I think that some people will tend to say that you need to go through that type of thing in order for people to go through really profound, deep, experiences but the fact of the matter is um if we so uh let, let me start out by saying this um my outfit or my brand is called cognitiveology that's a trademarked name and one of the main functions there's several main functions of cognitiveology but one of them would really be connecting connecting one thing with another thing and another thing and another thing so that we get this what we all believe in this interconnected, integrated way of feeling and thinking and reasoning and all the things that we do, intuiting. So um, one of the things that we're, lack we're all lacking in really is, is emotional intelligence development. And the human brain is emotionally developed. So what happens is when we go through uh, certain types of really dramatic or traumatic or tragic experiences, it really unleashes a lot of emotions. And part of emotional intelligence is really the ability to process knowledge and information through all the various types of emotions we have. So happiness is just as valuable as, say, anger or frustration or any other emotion we have. Um, in order to process knowledge and information. The reason why we have many different types of emotions is because there are types of knowledge and information that would be better processed through that type of emotion versus the other type of emotion, right? So, um, you know, some people say, you know, calm yourself down so that you can do things and get things done and accomplish your day. And I, I can remember so many days where I've been angry and I've got far more accomplished on a day like that than I did when I was like happy-go-lucky, right? So because when we take all of the hardwired elements of our brain and um, which are what we like to call in cognitiveology, the cocktail system spelled C-O-C-C-K-T-T-I-A, no, T-T-A-I-L-L. -L. So 
um, you know, because there's a recipe for real brain development. So we call it the cocktail code. <laughs> Uh, and those basically stand for compassion and optimism and uh, communication and charity and curiosity and truth and trust and transferability and transparency and altruism, imagination, intuition, logic, and love. Uh, the, the, these are the hardwired uh, elements of our brain. And this is why we celebrate um, good over evil or happiness over, uh, you know, trauma, all, all of these different things. But when those are all funneled through our sense of, I guess you could say graciousness, you know, how we still are able to treat ourselves with a certain type of graciousness and others, regardless of how we feel, then we give ourselves an opportunity to coagulate any and all emotions so that we can freely process whatever it is we're feeling or doing or whatever it is that we're going through. Now, I think that when people go through difficult times, they, they let the guards down. So they allow themselves to feel all these different emotions, but then they go through all of the things that they learned when they were kids about feeling, uh, un, in, you know, ingracious or ungrateful or, you know, the guilt or whatever, instead of being allowed to just experience all emotions. So um, neuroplasticity itself uh, is a sort of communication system in your brain. Okay, so it's kind of like you know, we each have a, a cell phone, which can connect wirelessly to the internet and to the, the you know, the communication system, whatever it is, all around the world. We could send somebody a picture in an instant or talk to somebody in Bombay or whatever the case is. But in order, even though those systems exist, we need to have a cell phone to connect to those systems. And then the cell phone, you could liken it. I've never used this analogy before, but I'm, I feel like using it today. So you can liken the cell phone to being your personal neural net, your personal web net kind of, kind of thing. So how much you use it and access it and diversify it and pull the apps together in different ways to do whatever it is that your phone can do so that you're interacting with somebody else for whatever reasons you need to interact with them about, right? So, um, so the, the ways that you can, you know, play around and diversify the different applications and features on your phone would, we could liken that to neuroplasticity to some degree. Um, and, uh, you know, so we can any, and any, any day or time we can actually learn something new through our phone or with our phone. Like somebody may say to you, well, go to your, I'm still trying to figure out when somebody says, go to your browser. And I'm like, where's the bloody browser? <laughs> like, what does that mean? I still have trouble doing that unless I get out of somewhere and I go over there and I do that thing and then I come back. But um, so, so sometimes I get a little bit confused. So that's just, you know, one thing that I have to deal with, but I'll figure it out one of these days, right? And once I do it, it's set. And 
that when we talk about neuroplasticity, once we do something and it's set and we realize how to do that and we could just do it from there on in that now we're connecting neuroplasticity to some of the other features that it's supposed to work with. So we're moving into intuitive intelligence now or wireless information transference. And when we talk about neuroplasticity, people will typically talk about the biochemical processes that go on with neuroplasticity and new pathways that are learned. But there's also a, a non-chemical wireless information transference. Now it has yet to be fully scientifically proven. This is one of the things that I predicted uh, in one of my books. If you see, you can see any of my books behind me. The, <laughs> um, uh, there is one uh, neuroscientist that tested um, non-chemical wireless information transference on mice. Uh, you know, of course, they always say it has to be tested on humans. But I, I, I wrote to this guy. We had a conversation for a little while back and forth. And I said to him, I said, yeah, okay. But um, I get, and I know that you're, you, you told me you're not a quantum scientist, and, and I get that. But the thing is, neurons are neurons, okay? <laughs> so even though neurons get designated to do certain jobs before they're leashed, you know, out of the gate to go and do something, but they all fundamentally have the same properties. Neurons are neurons. Whether they're neurons in a mice or neurons in a human or neurons, neurons are neurons. They, they're essentially like cells, but they really behave more like particles. And particles engage in their favorite activity, which is wireless information transference, right? So, so all, all brains, even animal brains, are in some ways a quantum information processor. But when we speak in those tones, then we, anything that we speak of, we always at some point have to move into what intuition really is and what intuitive intelligence is. Because intuitive intelligence really defines and marks our, our highest orders of intelligence. And um, animals are born with a fully developed brains and their intuitions, their basic rudimentary intuitions are intact with that. So that's why they can act instinctively pretty much on command or according to whatever responses they need to put in place for their everyday living and survival and, and all the things that we do with humans. We're born with underdeveloped brains. And so we have to develop cognition which then again, we go back to the neuroplasticity feature. So and all the activity and neural pathways that are developed with, um, with cognition. Um, but we have a basic intuition when we're born. And the human brain's emotionally developed, which depends on communication, which depends on relationships. So now you have the mixture of emotions, communication, and relationships. And so since we're also destined to develop a full spectrum of intuitive intelligence with humans, that develops in conjunction with cognition. So the real definition for human brain development, we typically uh, define it as cognition, but it's really an intuitive cognitive process. So as we learn language when we're young, we learn language intuitively and then language codes the brain depending on how 
we're taught language, how we're how we acquire language, how parents and teachers speak to children. There has to be certain codes of of knowledge. Um, you know, language essentially has to represent both the cocktail code and cognitively correct knowledge according to the fundamental principles and properties of the universe, which is the source of all knowledge. So, um, and real intuitive intelligence can only be built on those cocktail code elements that I mentioned, compassion and optimism. So when people say, oh, that guy's an evil genius, <laughs> or, you know, or this person's very intuitive, uh, I have reservations about that because are all their intuitive intelligence applications based on those brain development properties? Like they may be intuitive in a specific area, but unless it incorporates um, the elements of altruism and logic and love and truth and trust and all of those things, it's only a limited spectrum of intuitive intelligence. So in other words, someone who's lacking in those elements, but they're just really keen or sharp in a particular area of knowledge, intuitive intelligence is always going to be inclusive of being able to telepathically connect with people who we're close to, right? And if somebody right is just... defunct, yeah. right. Okay. I want to pause for just one second right there. When you talk about mm -hmm. the idea of non-chemical communication, intuition, and even telepathy, mm -hmm. I read an article mm -hmm. recently about mirror neurons between parents mm -hmm. and children. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. if that is an example of the non-chemical communication you were talking about. Yeah. Well, there's other, there, there, I think there's two ways to answer that. Yes to your question, first of all. <laughs> Yes, because communication comes in all forms. It's in the facial expressions, it's in the feelings that babies pick up, it's in the resonances that babies pick up. I mean, only one in 10,000 people have the gene for perfect pitch, but all babies have it and we fail to really foster it in the ways that are needed because that is then also directly connected with neuroplasticity and intuitive intelligence and multidimensional sensory tools or multi-dimensional senses or what you could say 12 dimensions for each sense you know smelling hearing touching so yes mirror neurons um are almost uh you could say like an identical twin to language and language semantics and codes and language tonations and the uh, a lot of the things that we call invisible knowledge information are directly connected to something that's substantial. So for instance, there are no wires going from your my phone to the electrical grid or anything like that, or plugged into the transformers that plug into the internet uh, web of the, of the world, right? And then you have things like you could smell something, uh, that's also a connection, again, like the example I just gave, between something invisible energy matter that's connected to a substantial source, right? So there's a lot more connections between the visible and invisible than people really give credit to. So, um, yes, uh, mirror neurons 
are like language anyway, or wireless information transference. They affect the neural net, and which affects neuroplasticity. And if we could actually see, you know, a lot of what we think are invisible, we would see a lot more activity. We would be able to detect or sense uh, a lot more activity. So when people are aware of that, then they're aware of a lot more, you could say, of what it is that they need to do and think and say and feel and how they strive for the best possible outcomes with understanding the cocktail code. So, but when we have certain things intuitively foster, just the same way I'm speaking or you're speaking or listening, you, you, you didn't have to spend an hour meditating before we got on this call to remind yourself how to hear or how to use words in your voice box and speak. We do it intuitively. While we're doing it, we can be aware um, or be, be more conscious or conscientious, but that's really the byproduct. So that's the added ability of what it is that we do. The mechanics and the means for us to really gain all the things that we wish to gain and master you know, including consciousness itself, are all achieved through intuitive intelligence. Without intuitive intelligence, we can talk ad infinitum about consciousness. It does little good. Um, you know, it's like showing food to someone who's hungry, but not allowing them to eat it, essentially. It's, it's a, <laughs> I mean, I, I have to find always rudimentary ways to explain it, and I try to avoid being sort of unoffensive. But oh, I think over the last couple of years, I've taken to just being like a four-year-old and just saying things, just tell it like it is because you know it's the four-year-old brain that has helped me unleash all of this information because that's where all the codes and clues and cues are for you know real brain development, total human brain potential. And it's the area that's least researched by neuroscience. So unless we really stick that link in the chain, we're going to keep thinking that the human brain's a mystery because the most important stage that has the most information is a mystery to neuro neuroscience. So that's why I spent 30 years writing these books. <laughs> in, our, in our previous conversation, I, I yeah. believe, correct me if I get this wrong, but the three to five-year-old brain or was it three to six-year-old brain? Is it's three to five, basically. It's actually five? shorter than that. It's three and a half to five. It's a very fleeting stage. But okay. it, if we, do, you know, the first five years goes by much quicker than people realize. And they go, oh, my God, yeah. the time's gone by. So so the first three years are really mostly emotional intelligence. It's hardly as if kids are are only getting emotional intelligence. They're learning language. They're learning. Their senses are being stimulated. All those things are being introduced. Um, they can speak by the time they're three, they can speak full sentences and all of that type of thing and everything's set in place. And by the time they're three and a half, um, I, you know, it's three and a half to five years old, this very significant stage where everything is mushed together in the same place at the same time as one conglomerate in different batter of ingredients, right? So it's a very fleeting stage. It's actually a year and a half. And if we do things really correctly during the first five years and very specifically with more careful precision at that 
three and a half to five year old stage, there's so much more that can be accomplished. In fact, I, I try to tell people a lot of times um, <laughs> that when kids get to be teenagers, I mean, parents love to blame hormones and oh, the prefrontal cortex is, you know, yet to be fully developed. But it's really when you talked about mirror neurons. So you know, I like to say it's a mirror, basically. It's an X-ray. It's an MRI of that three and a half to five-year-old stage of development. That's a scary. I understand that that's scary for people to reconcile with, but. That's just the truth, <laughs> fortunately yeah. or unfortunately. Yeah. So do you um, think that at the at three to five in this or at this year and a half window, is it fair to say that that really sets the stage for someone's long term potential as far as brain development? Uh, in many ways, uh, again, fortunately or unfortunately, ninety mm. percent of the ways that you will learn. Like we, wow. of course, have neuroplasticity when we're older, when we're adults, we can learn new things. But the way we learn new things in the neuroplasticity is really still going to be 90% based on um, the, the neuronal manifolds that were developed during those first five years. And especially the more precise neuronal manifolds for processing knowledge and information during that three and a half to five-year-old stage. So you can... You can stretch yourself, yes. Um, but when we talk about healing the inner child too, this is one of the things that we're addressing, but that's never included in, in therapies, cognitive therapies or healing or anything like that. We go back and we say, let's recognize these feelings and these emotions and these traumas and these hurts. But that's what we're really doing. We're, 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 we're spending time doing all these healing things when, when we should have had all of those abilities properly fostered so that we could spend our life engaging in them and spend the, instead of spending 90% of our life healing those things that were never properly fostered during those time. And then just being busy with all of our grand abilities and creating wonderful things and wonderful relationships with people all around the world without, you know, all these inhibitions and, you know, so uh, you know, a lot of times people ask me where I get my information from, or if I have a degree in psychology, I'm like, well, psychology really deals more with disorders and disabilities, unfortunately. Uh, I think they're making a little bit of a shift. And neuroscience, um, they have all these piecemeal projects and bits and pieces that they deal with, but they also need to get on the, on the bullet train <laughs> in terms of really thinking more about the brain as, as an organ of potential. Yeah, I could uh, so see that. we really do need to get back to our roots and re create a system because what we're we're doing is we we're we're all operating on. Um, and this is one of my favorite topics lately because people love to talk about, oh, you know, stop trying to be perfect and failures. The only way you can really learn or the best way to learn. And and I just get really bent out of shape by those things. I'm, I'm, it's hardly as if I'm offended, but I just want to jump in and say, right. okay, let, let's examine that. Because um, the system that we've been, the cognitive system that we've been operating on for at least you know, 50,000 years is a perfectly broken system. <laughs> it's that's completely imperfect that we operate perfectly without failure 
<laughs> we essentially have the system in place where we make sure that we guarantee that every child is broken. And then when they get to adulthood, we're going to say, okay, we're going to fix it all now. And we never fail that system. But then we have this other definition of failure. And this is where I like to expound upon my standard model of E equals MC square as the uh, database for defining everything. So just like in the universe, you have a definition for energy and matter that you don't have a definition for energy and matter on that side of the universe and then a separate one on the other side. It's, it's unilateral. It's universal. It's the same across the board. So we have this perfectly broken system that we operate without fail. Uh, my question is, let's fail that system then and see what we can learn, <laughs> right? So if we operate it without failure and we're supposed to be learning from failure, as everyone says, then let's fail that system and see what we can learn. Otherwise, you have two options here. Either fail that system and let's see what we can learn, or we all need to get a new definition for what failure is. <laughs> you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, I do. Maybe you could back up and tell people what your definition of EMC squared is, because you have a different meaning behind it, right? Right. Well, uh, in some ways, I, I, I like to say, I mean, uh, my definition for e equals MC squared is the scientific universal definition, which is basically... A lot of times people say, oh, I don't get that science and that math and everything like that. I mean, Einstein even said once the mathematicians got hold of E equals MC squared, he, mm -hmm. he, he, he had trouble understanding it, right? Mm -hmm. So um, most math is non-numerical. Uh, uh, people think it's about the numbers. So I understand how they get bent out of shape. Um, e equals MC squared, essentially, you could put in the worded form, energy and matter can neither be created nor destroyed but can be changed from one form to another. Now, on the most fundamental level, energy and matter and knowledge and information are exactly the same thing because all knowledge and information and all our amenities, everything come from nature, from the natural. Like we could build these cell phones, but unless there's a natural wireless, it would be useless. And we would never think of doing something that's outside of the scope of what exists in the universe, right? So... Um, yes, the standard model of E equals MC square relative to brain development is exactly the same thing. It, it really means that we have to have one definition, uh, one definition for cognition that covers all cognitive processes, whether it's emotional, intellectual, reasoning, um, any of those, um, quantum information processing. Uh, but we could say that because our uh, if if we're putting in cognitiveology terms, again, my most important standard is that when we have a definition for what brain development is, that has to remain consistent. And that definition has to be commensurate with the fundamental laws of the universe, right? So the fundamental laws of the universe say that all forces have equal value. They just do different functions. So it's the same with our brain. Our brains are emotionally developed. So all emotions have equal values, regardless of what they are. But they'll have different functions. But they'll have different applications. But emotions 
have a certain function as information processors. So that's the E or the energy of our of our whole verveness, you could say, <laughs> what makes humans, um, what makes living things. So emotion, you could say, if we were substituting energy equals matter times the square of the speed of light, light also represents um, uh, knowledge and information, right? And energy can represent emotion. And um, uh so we could say that, you know, E equaling MC square, energy equaling mass uh, times the square of the speed of light, we could say that emotion equals our mental cognition at, you know, uh, of the square of the speed of light. Because even we take the whole conversation back to neuroplasticity and neurotransmitters, they essentially travel at the speed of light as far as i can understand now, i always try to check my science on yeah. every actual part but light is light right and electromagnetism is invisible light and both of these forces govern how neurons operate right they go across an empty synapse in the brain and they travel basically at the speed of light um so the processes that we perform that we can, the cognition itself is the mass that we accumulate, but we can add to that mass and the information travels via light, you know, natural fiber optics, right? In, in our brain. So there's a, a, a distinctive parallel, but again, um, I think that a lot of, times people think that I'm just creating an analogy when the actual standard model for what E equals MC square is applicable to the microcosmic human brain. It's a mini universe. So um, again, the most important thing is that we understand the basic forces of the universe and that our because all knowledge and information come from those forces, then our definitions for all of the things that we think and do must be commensurate or consistent with those basic laws that govern all energy and matter, that govern all knowledge and information in the universe. So again, um, having one definition for failure in these instances over here and having another definition for failure over there or a different definition or ignoring it over there, that's just, you know, inconsistent, incoherent. So then we have to bring it back and say, okay, well, what does failure mean over there? Or what does success mean over there? You know, people insist that you have to fall down and then you have to know how to get up. And um, oh, sometimes I like to use this information you know when i learned to ride a bike there were no training wheels there were no adults standing by cheering me on there was nobody encouraging me nothing i i didn't even have a bike i just borrowed a friend's bike <laughs> and i said can i borrow your bike for a few minutes and they were like yeah sure they wanted to go off and play with someone else and i just put my legs out to the side um you know i guess to be like the training wheels so that i can get the right. balance once I did that, I started writing. I never fell once. <laughs> never fell down once. I still learned to ride that bike. So, <laughs> and you know, we learn more from doing things 
correctly than we do from falling down. I mean, falling down and failing will show you certain things. Yes, they're one, they, they can be wonderful if you treat them the same way as the, everything else that you do, every moment that you're learning. I mean, I, I love to use, this is my favorite example. The example I love to use is like, <clears throat> let's say you're the main cook in your household, right? And you come home every night, five nights a week, you come home and you just totally screw up the dinner, right? Yeah. And, um, and then you go and announce to your family members, well, I, I, you know, I messed up the dinner again. You know, you're going to have to wait another hour. You, <laughs> the only thing that you're going to learn is that you're like fostering uh, murderous tendencies in your, <laughs> in your house. It's like, whoa, I'm hungry. You know? yep. um, I mean, what else are you going to learn from that? Uh, very <laughs> few people go home and mess up the dinner. Okay, once in a while you mess up the dinner and it burns. Once in a while you mess up the dinner and you realize you put something else in it instead of that ingredient. And you go, oh, this came out really nice. Or, oh, this came out really crappy. I'm going to make sure I never do that again. Um. But for the most part, I think that I, I'm still trying to find a way to convey this idea that um, <clears throat> if people treat, if people are on a learning spree all the time, they, they barely even notice that they had a, a lapse in what they were doing or an error or a, a failed attempt. It's just like, you know, it's just like, you know, if you drop the fork on the floor, you pick it up, you wash it off, you, you yeah. sit down and you eat, you know, you don't, you don't go traumatized to your room and, 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 <laughs> and have to meditate for a half an hour and say, oh my God, how ever did I drop that fork on the floor? It's just, you know, uh, it's, it's all part of the process. Um, they, they, you I mean, you just keep going. I mean, sometimes there things happen you know, if you're doing a big project where you may have to, we always have to reevaluate or do the computational thinking thing and maybe go, well, okay, maybe there's a better way to get this done. Or maybe I really should be on another path. But okay, so maybe you would have only learned that through failure. But, you know, if we're much more in tune with what our real abilities are or what our real, um, you know, you know, our, our greatest proclivities are, then there's definitely a way for us to embark on the things that we'll be more successful at or have more achievement with than uh, some of the things that I think people get caught up in because our world is really designed to go according to politics and money. And these are any even real sciences and they're right. ruling the world. And we define things a lot of times by money and politics and religions. Like yep. those things aren't even real sciences, you know? So, so of course people experience, and you know, the world is ruled by money and the rules of money are very non-commensurate with real brain potential. I mean, a real currency should be human abilities right so of course people are going to go through traumatic and tragic experiences where money and economics and all those kind of things are concerned because you know a lot of us we need to make money to live yes of course and yep. if we make a lot of money that's a wonderful thing because unfortunately we're stuck in this system <laughs> but yeah. um i think a lot more people if they're really 
getting exposure to their own abilities in those early years of life, more people would really be doing what their passion is. You should never have to wait until you're adult to figure out what your passion is. You should already be well aware of what your passion is, probably by the time you're 12. Now, I think that between the ages of 12 and 19, people may be introduced to something else that will sprout off from their passion um, that that is more conducive to what they feel that they really like to focus on in terms of work. But I think I'm going to just interject myself right here and yeah. let you say some things um, and just say that um, th- one of the things that I think is very important for the early development is that um, that has to be learned is that people have more than one ability to focus on one career pathway for life is just that's also non-commensurate with the diversity of abilities that we have. So when we talk about diversification, that's another talk that we can speak of one day. Yeah, It's first the cognitive process, but people have a multitude of abilities. So that's, that's one thing that needs to be taken into consideration. There should never be just one career pathway that people have to take. And also uh, the other thing, that I think must come into play more in the future when we speak about what are you doing, what your passion is. Well, everybody has so many passions. They just really get to choose one in the system, in that 50,000-year-old system we work. But there comes a time when we're really upgrading actual brain development where work and recreation really have a very ambiguous line between them. This is where the word ambiguous has a really nice meaning, definition, mm-hmm. feeling, just like energy and matter. You know, there's an ambiguous line between them. There's a flow, mm-hmm. right? So anyway, I will stop there. I want to hear some of your reflections on all my jabbering. <laughs> I I love it, Carla. I it's Thank you. it's clear to me, it's clear to me that you have done a lot of research and it's clear to me that you have a thorough understanding of what you're telling us. And I, I, they're unlike a lot of things I've ever heard before. And I think that that's what makes me so curious and so thankful to talk to you is you have some beautiful analogies and it's fun to get to explore ideas that I've never heard before. And I, I guess one question I would, I'm really thankful. And I guess one question I would go back to is that let's say we, let's say in by some miracle, that we get a, a group of young kids between this magic age range of this year and a half, and we do all the things that we're supposed to. This is a two-part question. First off, what, what are some of the things that we could do to help develop the brain in that small window we have? And if we did do those things and we hit it just right, what would some of the abilities be for the fully functioning brain later in life if they were molded the right way at that time? Right. Well, it's certainly going to take a a couple of generations to get that ball rolling. Um, We're going to have to, for for to to answer your question, because we're dealing with um, a hypothesis here to some degree, a reality, but also a hypothesis. So the first, the first reality would be that they would have had to have had the first three years of emotional intelligence done in a very proper, what I like to call cognitively correct fashion. So 
there's a lot of information around that people are becoming very literate about where the first three years are concerned. So that's a good thing. I mean, there's more to it than what people are learning, but people are learning a lot quickly about how those first three years really operate. Some people are still way behind, you know, leave the baby crying in the crib and all that kind of thing, um, or pick them up and throw them over your shoulder and just say, shh, 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 rather than sit them on your lap and cuddle them and hold them and look them in the eye and talk to them. You know, after you've figured out all of the other physicality things that need to be addressed, you know, whether they're hungry or still tired or they feel lonely. Babies are very spiritually sensitive too. How can we be sure that something, you know, what hadn't scared them when they were in their room alone crying? You know, there's, there's many things to consider. Um, it's good for babies to learn some form of sign language because it's hard for them to form words. Um, a lot of babies have learned sign language. This really catapults communication. Um, and also, you know, a certain amount of basic telepathy between parent and child. So with that set in place, <laughs> now we can answer your question, <laughs> at least get that going. So, <clears throat> um, Yes, there's a lot of things. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, let me start off by saying most of what's being done with three and a half to five year olds, most places around the world, um, is if we get kids when they're three and a half years old and we tell them, you know what, you're three and a half now. So what we're going to do is we're going to put you in a coma. And when you're five years old, we're going to wake you up. That's the closest analogy I can come to with what we do with preschoolers. We're really, what we do with them is just so far removed from what we really, really need to be doing with them. So, and a lot of industrialized countries, of course, focus on the ABC and the one, two, three, and that's extremely detrimental. Um, there's so much more for them to learn. Um, basically, Answer your question very simply. It needs to be an organic STEM program. It needs to be based on natural science and natural math and, um, and cognitively correct language. So uh, teachers, there's a, there's a technique. Um, there's number one requisite technique that all early educators are supposed to use regardless of which cognitive functions they're dealing with or whatever communications they're doing, whatever's going on. Early educators are never supposed to use the words no, not, don't, can't, and shouldn't, right? So, and to just speak with children, you know, verbs are the most, are the word in a sentence that's the main part of speech in any language. Why is it? Because that's the word that contains the most information about what you're trying to convey, right? So um, so let's say you and I go hunting on a regular basis. And I get up one morning and I say, George, hunt. You know, you're going to know what I'm saying, especially if you realize that I'm not a morning person and I'm not going to say much in, early in the morning other than the word coffee, which is the next main part of speech in a sentence, a noun, <laughs> right? So, but verbs are the most important information context in a sentence and they carry the most information value. 
right? So if we're negating the most valuable word in a sentence, what is that telling the brain? What is that coding the brain for? And then we say to kids things like, don't do that. So we're negating the verb, and then it's also coming without any information. And usually, if it comes with information after that, it's one negative consequential piece of information. Don't do that, you'll get hurt. And um, rather than, hey, if you want to really do that, you have to wait until I'm standing very close by your side. Okay? And if um, I see that you need help in a certain way or area climbing this tree or something then i may reach out my hands to hold you or you might ask me to help you at that point so we're giving optimal information so there's a so even we take things like positive and negative we have really uh bad definitions for these things right they're they're very inconsistent with the laws of the forces of the universe as defined by E equals MC square, right? So if negative is bad and positive is good, and then that has to apply to everything, okay? That's the meaning of E equals MC square is the standard model. So that would mean while you're driving home from work, you're going home and you go, oh God, negative is really a bad thing. When I get home, I got to make sure that I disengage all the negative uh uh, currents in my electricity in the house because negative is bad. You know, <laughs> negative and positive have equal values, right? It depends on how you use them. If you did that, then it would be unimportant that you left the positive charge there. You're just going to be minus all your electricity. That's all there is to it, right? So, um, you know, uh, we have optimal information processing. So we need to really optimize the verbs and we need to optimize uh, the value of children's emotions so that what we're saying gives validity and confidence and esteem to their feelings about what they can do and what they can accomplish. So we're giving the information, it's coded in the language that we speak. Sometimes when I've explained this years ago, I can remember people saying to me, so what do I say to the kids? But I thought they wanted the cognitively correct version of what to say. But what they were really asking me was, was in the vein of what so many books tell parents what to do. Take your kid aside and tell them the value of, like, <laughs> forget it. You need to code in the language you're speaking how knowledge and information gets rendered through their abilities and their motor tools and their senses. So um, that's, that's actually a very important thing. So all of everything that we say and we do has to follow that standard model. It has to be optimal and compassionate. And, um, but to get back to your question, yes, an organic STEM program includes natural science, natural math, the, the, um, the natural cocktail code of the brain, the 100% hardwired system for compassion and optimism and all those other elements. Um, it's all synthesized by cognitively correct language. The things that we teach kids, what we say has to be commensurate with, um, 
with the natural forces and fields of the universe that give us all of our energy and matter and knowledge and information. Nobody ever thought that the job of a preschool teacher would seem so complex, but this is easily funneled into what is called diversified fundamental principles of mathematics, um, only one of which are numbers. <laughs> so um, when parents, when, when we grow up, to answer one of your earlier questions too, when parents grow up with fully developed brains, then of course, that's already one mirror image you have there. That's already a neuron imaging. That's already neuroplasticity. That's already cognitively correct in place. That's already the emotionally developed brain according to the real cocktail system, as we call it. Um, all those things are in place. And raising children should really be called, rather than parenting, it should be called childing. And childing should be understood as child development. That's what parents do. They're, you're developing your child's brain. You're emotionally developing your child's brain, which you're in charge of because guess what? You're the one who loves that baby more than anybody in the world. That's why you are in charge of that emotional intelligence development, right? So you just to see where it all is pieced together, where we talk about that. So our, our, our most important intelligence system that we need to learn is that of love. And we need to have an intuitive knowledge of love that is inextricably linked with how trust works. So babies are born in fully trusting. Um, they never ask parents to earn, but unfortunately adults, we break that trust time and time and time and time again, unfortunately. So, um, but I think people are becoming more and more aware. And for people who are doing that, you hear four-year-olds speaking in much more sophisticated ways than they did say, 30 or 50 years ago. So um, there is some evolution, you could say, in terms of this, but I find that it gets stumped at that three and a half year old stage. Like people are becoming more literate about those first three years. So I've heard people say, um, a, a few weeks ago, I've heard somebody on another show saying, yes, 90% of the brain is developed by the time you're three years old. And that's true. The, the biochemical, neuronal, all, all that stuff is 90% developed by the time you're three. But the cognitive functions still, 90% uh, of the cognitive functions are developed in the first five years, but very much more heavily, particularly, specifically, succinctly in the three and a half to five-year-old stage where everything has to get hooked together. It's like one big junction. The brain is only interested in understanding the natural math of each function. So those mathematical principles govern each cognitive function. The brain is basically saying, like, show me the math, show me the math, <laughs> not show me the money, show me the math. Because every cognitive function has to be fostered by all of the fundamental math principles. That's where our platform, our basement of knowledge transferability gets swooped over to something else. So 
um, but we could talk about that in more detail another time. <laughs> I think um, I'd like to hear more about your reflections too. Yeah. So what about the, like, what about the second part of the question? So let, let's say that we do, <laughs> we do get there. Right. What, I mean, this is kind of a hypothesis because I don't, I don't thoroughly know if, if there are some people that are that, that right. finely tuned develop, but let's say hi hypothetically there is what other features or what would it look like or what would a person's abilities be if they were really trained well at that age? What do you think? Okay. So that's a good question because one, the, the, the most forward answer for that would be that um, people would be much more diversified in their abilities, both in their emotional intelligence development abilities and their intellectual reasoning intelligence abilities. And of course, we hope that in their spiritual quotient of intelligence abilities as well, which the invisible, which includes the spiritual quotient of intelligence really makes up 60 to 70% of our intelligence potential. So um, while there are a lot of preschools that are developing much more advanced ways in dealing with like an organic STEM program. You have, you have systems like Reggio, Bank Street, right. Steiner, Waldorf, Montessori. These are dealing, they're really, really gaining ground in, in, in things like what would be considered organic STEM or what some of them even describe as how their whole curriculum is based on energy and matter. Um, but once you talk about one of the forces of the universe, it's very interconnected with the other forces. So you could do a little, throw in a little bit electromagnetism and stuff, but then to really, really catapult ahead, you have to include all of them. And then that means at that point, you have to also include um, advanced communication and the wireless and spiritual quotient of intelligent, which means dealing at least in a rudimentary way with um, invisible resonances. It is mm. like, kids will get taught music, but it'll just be in the music context rather than diverse. Like, so each thing has to be diversified as much as possible. So if you're going to teach music, it has to be diversified according to all of its fundamental math principles that give it its definition. So you have to do a lot of things and fun activities with resonances and rhythms and rhymes and, and textures that are felt um, rather than just say a texture from, you know, here's a piece of cloth. It's, you know, there's a texture to it, but we need to learn the textures of feelings and the textures of resonances and things. So considering if, if, if it was all really, put into practice, as you say, I most undoubtedly see a difference between people operating from that database, from that, that's a special time in, in, in human brain development versus people who are just being, uh, you know, uh, you know, catapulted out of the old system or the, the regular system. But um, <clears throat> but I also think that if we were doing that, there would definitely be noted, it would be noticed by other people as they're growing up. Yeah. So rather than say, okay, here's a couple of really um, well fostered children in certain abilities or in the way that they relate to others or whatever the case may be. I think people will start 
we'll, we'll really consider investigating it more because um, I, I think it will make a difference if they're in the kids will definitely show it already in their relationship with their peers. So I think that's where the difference will first come because people are a little bit more literate about the whole emotional intelligence thing. So right. I think that's where it will really start being showcased and then things will take a different turn. But as it, as it, as it's exposed more and more and more, that it's, it's eventual thing. It's eventual an eventual process, but I do firmly believe that we can see significant differences over uh, a two to three generation um, momentum, I'd like to say, uh, where, uh, you know, huge, huge uh, leaps can be quantified at, in that, in that way, in that, in that veneer, you could say. So, um, but it really, really works. I, it really, really has to work where there's a critical mass of people involved. Right. And that's where, you know, where the struggle for me lies, because getting a critical mass of people to understand when I start talking about real, actual, full human brain potential, and then I have to reveal to people that it depends on understanding the three to five year old brain it's kind of like watching a movie where you're expecting a totally different ending and then it was just the anti-climax it's like uh it's it's difficult for people to reconcile so it's it's hard but other people are fascinated by it and they yeah. go well that's great yeah. you know really it is the foundation for everything in life like okay let's do that <laughs> yeah i you know i think it's that? exciting <laughs> I, I I see it. This is the first time, Carla. Like the first time we spoke to you, I I walked away and I, I, you know, when you walk away from a conversation and you have all these questions, it's usually a mark of a great conversation. And in doing so, the last conversation and in this conversation, I, I had written down some notes about what you had just said, and in mm -hmm. according to our previous conversation, right. And when you talk when you talk about the invisible resonance, or you talk about like advanced communication, these things that can happen if we're able to develop our kids with the right tools in the right environment. You know, in my mind, I begin thinking that it's in some ways it's already coded in our language. When you hear people say things like, Oh, I see it, or I get it. You know, we're using the words to explain what's happening inside our brain. And it's sometimes I've been in situations where or we've all been in situations where either we could see something about to happen before everybody else. Like that's a pretty mm -hmm. good analogy. And I think mm -hmm. that that is what's happening. And that's the, that's what I understand when you start talking about invisible resonance and you're making the invisible visible because some people already yeah. have the ability to see things yes. before they happen. Like, Oh my gosh, right. this guy's running down the street super fast. Here comes this car. But it's not that it's invisible. It's just that you have the ability to pay attention mm -hmm. to these small little things that maybe you learned when you were younger. You learned how to find yes. this verbal cue. You learned how to find yes. this, this sort of the way the wind hits you is interesting. So you paid attention, but you made those connections mm -hmm. at that age. And now that you're 40, you've been able to see these patterns. So it's like this yes. ongoing pattern, this ability, yeah, that... ability to make the visible, invisible visible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's an excellent, that's an excellent analogy. And the thing that I like to say that I like to reflect upon, as you just said, that 
it's that the phenomenon that we're watching too is that more and more people have certain abilities that they're able to talk about without being sent to a witch trial and hung in Salem <laughs> or anything, you know, uh, right? So, um, so, uh, but because, and I'm going to use the word celebrated because people are becoming more aware of certain things that they can actually feel or think or do, but it it's uncelebrated. So uh, that's one way to explain it. But what I really like to say is that it's 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 less um, proselytized is another way to say it in, in, you know, in, in if we're using the mathematical principle of opposite in comparison to ex to explain or describe something. Right. So. Um, uh, you know, th th that is very true. And, and also all of those postulates that we spoke about in detail during this whole conversation, they, 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 they amount to something that's called, you know, computational thinking where all of those different mixes and ingredients. So, and we have a prefrontal cortex for a reason because we're supposed to have 2020 hindsight. Well, I mean, foresight, people talk about 2020 hindsight, but people's 2020 hindsight is still pretty lousy. As my editor likes to say, it's like, oh, yeah, so we learn from history, but we're destined to make the same mistakes again and again and again, because guess what? Our cognition is unchanged. We still have 20, you know, bad 2020 hindsight. So we're destined to make the same mistakes again. But we should have 2020 foresight to, to at least to some degree, to at least for the things that we regularly experience every day with things that are a little bit more rare or come around about we should still have some uh if if our we think of sight foresight as being seen but when you put it in the context that you do like resonance there's another type of sight so when we say right we really we think we have five uh rudimentary senses but if there's 12 dimensions of energy and matter i know like string theory likes to say that there's 11 we're certain that there's 12 in cognitiveology because there's no 11s anywhere of anything in the universe. Um, I explained the people said, well, how do you come up with that? Well, I said, well, the 12th dimension would be a dimension that simultaneously resonates at every point in its, in its uh, rhythm or platform. At, it resonates at every point, all other 11 dimensions at the same time if you're going to use time as part of it. We could say that because one of those dimensions would be 3D space-time. So, um, so we can have a feeling uh, fully developed in terms of 12-dimensional sensory perception, but it could also be sight, right? So you, depending on your particular unique abilities, your foresight might be actually more in like, I see that coming, or uh, it might be more as like, I feel that coming. It's still a, you could call it a sight. A, a foresight is relative to all of our abilities, right? So um, you could actually, some people might hear it. You know, some mm. people will hear resonances before they um, they they come about, and um, some people might smell them, mm. you know, or they might, you know, smell them and feel them under their feet, you know, long before they're there. So, 
uh, it gives it, it starts to give an idea when we start to attach 3D, 4D to 5D and some of the other sensory perceptions, then we could start to put a br bridge a gap or put bridges between or connect more the physical, the visible and the invisible. When we start talking about things like, we really foster kids with fun activities like smell and sound and resonances and feelings and all of these other types of things that bridge the gaps between the visible and invisible. These are one of the best things that can happen with for kids and especially when they get older and innovative processing and collaborating with other people because then they could foresee what other people are going to feel. They could right. kind of almost foresee some of the things that are already collaborating between them in terms of ideas and resonances. It's a whole new ball game, <laughs> you could say. I mean, that's one way to say it. Yeah, that, and that would be an exciting future if more people had, whether it's through hearing or sight or whatever dimension we're playing in, if they have this developed cog cognitive ability, mm -hmm. it just makes for a better environment. It would make for well, yeah. maybe, yeah. maybe, hopefully, it wouldn't make for a more sinister environment. I'm sure. The no, same because you, could be used. these things can only be built again. People that um, I'm sorry to interrupt you on that one, but yeah, please, it's one of my pet peeves. It's um. People will say, oh, well, what if people use it for bad? But again, let's go back to the fundamental prospects of intuitive intelligence, which is what fosters all of these abilities. They can only be built on the brain's hardwired system. People have this conception that the brain is neither inherently good nor bad. I, I did a post about that the other day, and I hope you get a chance to look I at will. it. I will. I'll go back and um, see it. But um, yeah, I, I think the title of it was like um, e evil having victory over goodness <laughs> with question marks <laughs> all around it. Right. So um, because a lot of those abilities, the resonance, the foresight, all of those things, they're built on a proper foundation of emotional cognition. Mm -hmm. Right. So in, and there has to be a platform where people are resonating upon. So somebody who's, for whatever sinister or something like that is 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 going to have a lot of problems resonating with people who are operating on the cocktail system which is the way our brain is supposed to be operating on which is why we only use parts of our ability because as much as we strive to be good all the time we, we're constantly eating up our energy and our time because we really want so much to be what it is that we're really designed and constituted to be you know brilliant and beautiful internally beautiful all that kind of stuff so, um, yes, the whole, the whole uh, resolution to, you know, getting cynicism and getting the old system away is doing what's cognitively correct. And that starts with emotional cognition. So, um, and we already know kids in school that are having trouble learning. It's, yeah. There's emotional cognitive difficulties in place. You know, these hardly need rocket science for that or more proof or anything like that. It's like, okay, we know that already. So let's move forward with the emotional cognitive processes that allow for all the other, you know, intelligence quotients to really, you know, get super empowered, right? We are, so we already know that. So that needs to be fixed because the system that we're running on is a, is a broken, a perfect, a perfectly imperfect broken you know perfectly uh, well, let's say it's a perfectly broken system that we perfectly right. implement and it's predominantly 
um, designs to break the emotional quotients of cognition. That's why when we're older, all of the therapies are about inner healing and the trauma. I mean, you know, nobody goes to cognitive therapy because the teacher told, insisted that two plus two equals five. And I have to really reconcile that it only equals four. And you know, I really need to get therapy for that. That was really wrong of her to teach me that, you know, mathematically incorrect idea. Right. Nobody goes to therapy for that. Right? <laughs> and I hardly mean it all to make fun, but it's all about the emotional trauma. People have gone, and, and of course, when you think about some of the things that people have said to kids that were emotionally debilitating, it's it, you know, now we're taking it into yeah. that the, all those other directions because they were giving them information that was also inconsistent with the cocktail code of the brain and inconsistent with the basic knowledge of the universe. You know that any 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 constitution or composition of energy and matter can has has power packed of potential in it and you stick a brain on it that's operating properly instead of by some kooky viruses <laughs> now you have all kinds of uh infinite possibilities about what can be composed from such a constitution so yeah. yeah, I heard I once heard a pretty good analogy, or at least I thought it was good. And I'm curious to get your opinion on it. When talking about the brain and the and behavior, the analogy that I read was something along the lines of going to a ski slope. Like, and let's do two one. The first time you go to the ski slope, you go to the top of the hill and it's midday, and you mm -hmm. go to this double diamond and you go down. But by midday, the snow is icy, and there's been hundreds of skiers, so the, the roots are already cut. And they have this right. deep groove and you got to stay in that groove. Otherwise, you're going to fall and there might be stuff in your way. But let's do it another way. Like, let's say you're the first person on the top of that slope and it's like powder. Now right. you have the ability to cut the groove the first time and go down and, man and maneuver through obstacles, whichever way you see fit. Is that mm -hmm. sort of something you could use when we're looking at, at um, setting up the, the system in the three to five-year-old range? You could, because I, I mean, in some ways you can. I, I, I would hesitate to some degree because the neuroplasticity is with us all our life. That does keep the brain flexible. It is exercise for the brain. So like every part of our body needs to be exercised. Well, you know, neuroplasticity, you could say, is kind of like the muscle of the brain. So mm. it needs to be exercised. So if we, if we contain it. It was you know the way that we contain it is kind of be like uh what was that thing in 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 ancient Chinese culture where they would keep the women's feet in these little tiny right like, boxes yeah, or something. Right, they're, right, they're, right. They're, right. Like, make their cute, feet all deformed. Right, right. So um I mean that's the analogy that comes to mind when ah, you say that it's like kind of like a restriction I there. See. Okay. Um you know if you only the, the, the neural net can accommodate unlimited manifolds mm. of different processes of knowledge. So um, when we restrict it to certain files or manifolds of the way information can be processed, when it's all about just the 3D or about 
doing it this way or whatever. I think the analogy in that sense, when you combine it or if we synthesize it together, the skiing analogy, that that it, it is it is relevant in that sense. But um, but neuroplasticity itself is always plastic uh, as long as people are really generous. But neuroplasticity starts first at the emotional cognitive level. There are many new pieces of information we can learn, right? But yeah. every piece of information comes for the human with an emotional component. So if you're unwilling to process that emotional component, then it's going to be hard to learn. And that's where the neuroplasticity gets inhibited a lot of times. So um, because of whatever, people's belief systems, all kinds of things, or they never really experienced that emotion before. Um, if it dredges up certain things that are unpleasant. Yeah. That, that, so there's a, there's, there's a bunch of factors that will inhibit neuroplasticity. But neuroplasticity is first and foremost an emotional cognitive process. So when we talk about learning and having neuroplasticity and new knowledge, our, our, our first obligation to ourselves is always to learn new emotions. Now, there's a certain set of emotions, but it's just like there's this only, uh, you know, 10 single number digits, right? Mm -hmm. But you can make unlimited numbers with those 10 digits, those 10 cardinal numbers, right? Yeah. So, right. So if our, 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 our emotional manifolds were given unlimited uh, sense of optimal accessibility when we're babies, um, then that creates a way for babies to always learn. It, it has, it, there has to, there's a certain kind of sensitivity. You know, if babies, it's delicate. If babies are meant, are, are somehow, they can feel if they're meant uh, to be able to be emotionally free, if somehow they feel guilty about having a dirty diaper or something like that. Well, I mean, it sounds so rudimentary, so base baseline, but you really have to turn everything into a fun activity for babies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a start. I know it sounds crude for some people and there's a lot more to it than that. And there are people who are specialties in baby, you know, specialists in baby care. And there's all kinds of ways to really learn how to, you know, the first six months, there has to be a constant emotional soothing for babies. And that is essential for them to learn from the six month point until, you know, that two, two and a half, three, three year old and exploration people always say oh they're at that stage where they're saying no oh they learned that from you instead mm -hmm. of giving direction or saying something more cognitively correct so you know now they can get up and move around and walk and they can talk so of course they're going to say you said no to them a million times and now mm -hmm. they're going to say no back to you a million times <laughs> you, know, like, you know they should be saying yes <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> so, sometimes yeah. I wonder, sometimes I wonder, Carla, like, 
it seems that in the 1900s, we moved into this idea of education, like the Prussian school model, where we started training obedient workers. Where we brought in mm-hmm. one person, an authoritarian, to stand in front of the class and tell them, yes. hey, don't speak back to me. Get a pass if you want to go to the bathroom. Raise your hand. Mm-hmm. Ask for permission. Right. And it seems like we've lost so much creativity. We've lost mm-hmm. so much in this process. Yes. You know, I, and I, yes. I'm glad to see the Reggio philosophy and this stuff moving forward. But how hindered, how much has that hindered not only the people we see today, but education as general going forward? It almost seems like yeah. education today is, is almost worthless. Yes. And there's someone on LinkedIn that I'm connected to. I'm unsure if you're familiar with him. I would suggest you get connected with him just to sure. see his post all the time. His name is Matt Barnes. Okay. We have a lot of, we go back and forth a lot, him and I. Nice. You know, he, he speaks a lot about this and independent learning, and he's very much into reforming education, and he's on that whole spectrum. Of course, I'm constantly, you know, prodding him with an electric rod saying, okay, yeah, <laughs> but, you know, you, I know you're doing the K-12 thing. I'm all with you, but we need to really set that up in the pre-K thingy. You know, I'm, 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 I'm converting him little by little. <laughs> <laughs> He's starting to get, he's starting, you know, but he understands very well uh, this whole concept that you've just spoken about and um, why education needs to change and change quickly and change drastically because, you know, the the, the widget era is over, maybe for development and industry during that time, but we did damage a lot of people. and, And I think part of it we're seeing now, I worked in elder care for a few years because uh, for 13 years, because I was really focusing on being in the fields once again to write my fourth book, um, which is uh, my books are all called connecting the dots in some way. One's connecting the dots. One's the dots connected. Um, one's collecting and connecting the dots. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one I wrote collect. Connecting the dots, the subtitle is the cognitively correct way to speak with preschoolers. So that was my first mission control. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The second, the dots connected, the second one, which is a big fat 500 page book. I've, I've really gone to the umpteen degree um, of explaining everything according to the E equals MC squared standard. But I've had to use, in order to explain and prove the real significance of the preschool brain, I've had, there's nothing in neuroscience really. So when I did independent research, I realized I'd have to use other fields of science. So I've had to use astrobiology and and the the fundamental laws of physics, the uh, basic principles of mathematics, language, um, the math of language, and um, and also biochemistry and string theory and quantum entanglement. And, you know, the four-year-old brain is essentially, the three to five-year-old brain is essentially the quantum brain. And I know people have a lot, scientists like to say that people have a hard time wrapping their head around the whole quantum thing. But um, when you look at the preschool brain, it's um, it's if you understand it, it is the quantum brain. It's, it's, if you can understand the preschool brain, you can understand quantum entanglement. I know some scientists will have a lot of problem with that, but um, I find it easy to understand the pre-K brain. And 
entanglement makes more sense to me than most other things. <laughs> so, <laughs> but maybe that's because I'm a little bit um, peculiar. But uh, yeah, uh, the, to go back to what we were talking about in the whole widget style education, the conveyor belt, which I think is mm. a very significant thing to bring up. Uh, in terms of cognitive development, because effectively and essentially, when we think parenting, we should think brain development. When we think childcare, we should think brain development. When we think education, we should automatically think brain development. So that's another thing where I say, okay, let's get E equals MC square on the table. You know, sometimes when I've done seminars for early educators, I've written some terms on the board, brain development, parenting, education, preschool development, diversification, um, whatever, a bunch of that. Hey, I, I tell them, I say, write a definition for each of these things. And so they sit there and they struggle and they try to write definitions. Okay. I say, so then I, then I say, okay, stop, stop now. And let's hear a couple of your definitions. And, and I listen to the definitions and I say, okay, you should have one definition for all of those things. Okay. Because that's what entanglement is. <laughs> that's one way to explain it. That's what the preschool brain is, right? Parenting, education, child development, um, you know, multidimensional, emotional, intelligence, intuitive information processing. It's all one thing to the pre-K brain. So we talk about integration and intuitively understanding how everything in the universe is interconnected. That's where it gets plastered to our brain. That's where it happens. That's where the magic gets taken place. So anyway, I said all that because, well, now did you learn something new <laughs> again, George? But I did. The, the fourth book I wrote is called The Dots Disconnected. And um, I, I'm bringing that up because I'm really always moved by someone who's talking about educational reformation and the things that people went through with the Prussian school model and everything like that. But my fourth book's called The Dots Disconnected. And um, the subtitle is uh, Cracking the Cognitive Code of Dementia. Mm. Can you speak? Maybe move right. it a little bit. Just, there you go. That's much better. Yeah. Cracking the cognitive code of dementia. And um, while there's a lot of research going on with dementia and Alzheimer's, uh, a lot of the talk has to do with uh, nutrition and lifestyle and all of these things. But all of these things are all imminently tied to cognition. Cognition is a whole body process. So there's zero difference also between all of those things that we learn and do, how we interact with people, our emotional intelligence, our nutrition, the way we eat, the way we, you know, find ourselves being one with nature, all of that stuff. Yeah, all those things matter. But at the heart of cognitive impairment, it is predominantly rooted in cognitive development. So when we talk about dementia or Alzheimer's and we say it's cognitive impairment, how can we talk about cognitive impairment and only say it's nutrition or chemical environment and say it has nothing to do with cognitive development? That's the most insane thing. 
that's where we become the most cognitively dissonant. So wow, um, right. predominantly rooted in cognitive development and especially in early cognitive development. So um, yeah, that's, that's important. And, and I think that that is very directly tied to what people experienced in terms of education and societal expectations in the mm. 20th century, especially, especially the first half of the 20th century. But it's still, you know, meted out and metered on throughout the second half. And we're still trying to dispel. Here we are in the 21st century, and we're still trying to dispel. Um, I mean, you know, education has, has been a tough convert, let's say, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. And you know, yeah, and you take things like what diversification, what people, most people think diversification is, was never originally what diversification was. So this is a good example of taking, you know, we say history, learned lessons, the system that we use. So we, we come up with this brilliant new idea and we define it, but because we're trying to learn everything we can. We're learning something new. So now we have this new title, diversification. But what ends up happening is we make the same repetitive historical mistakes because our cognition is unchanged. So we take something like diversification. And what happens is we throw it in that old system. So now the definition has moved away when it first was innovated. It was like it looked close to the E equals MC square standard model. Right. But now it went into the broken system. And the same thing happened mm. with STEM. Now STEM is defined by coding and robotics. But originally also it was a brilliant idea about how to develop critical thinking skills and a whole bunch of other yeah. stuff. Right. But and STEM is or is an organic program first. Again, natural science, natural math. And it is first and foremost applicable to the humanities. Right now, the way STEM is, it's robotics and coding, and we're still going to give a little honorable mention to arts and humanities on, on the margin, in the margin part of this. But it's first and foremost a humanities and arts things. And when I say arts, I mean, I don't mean, you know, painting and, you know, funky new self-expression there and, you know, putting graffiti on walls. It's it's creative development because creative development is very significant for cognitive development because for people to really develop their unique skills, creative development is imperative. And unique skills, children find a lot of identification when they get to play in nature too because mm -hmm. there's things that just automatically, it's almost like their first the first type of telepathic information processing that they can do on an intellectual level. You know, nature speaks to them. That's why they're fascinated with it. And we never really foster that. Some of these newer systems that we talk about do um, encourage those things, but then we have to move on to some of the other stuff. But um, yeah, so the education system does need to change. A lot of things need to change and people are becoming more enlightened and aware, but it needs to happen faster. It's yeah. we're, we're falling behind it in a way. It needs to fa happen faster than than what we're doing for developing it. The 
Do you understand what I'm saying? When the enlightenment yeah. is there, we need to we need to jump on that. We need to do right. supersonic, right, and really apply it around to many 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 things. You know, we need to we need to do everything in society the way we cook supper at night. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a great. It's I love that point. analogy I came up with. <laughs> yeah. Don't burn it. Don't burn it five days in a row. That would be horrible. And make it delicious every night, yes. all the time. Yeah. <laughs> what, do you think it's a natural process? Like this, this sort of, you've been, you've been talking about this for quite some time and we had made 30 the, years, 30 years, 30 years. 30, like, yeah. Yeah. A little, yeah. A little we, over And we had years. talked about it sometimes when you're, I think I had said, or we had talked about the idea that, Sometimes being really early looks a lot like being really wrong. But do you think it's a natural, right? I oh, I see. Like yeah, I, I, I like that saying. I never heard that before. But um, when you consider Dr. Snow and um, Tesla and uh, uh, Ada Byron Lovelace and uh, a whole bunch of people with a whole lot of things. Um, yeah. Uh, there's there's so many there's so many things that people have come up with and it, people were you know they told them yeah. well you know how are you gonna do that like nobody's gonna buy that or um you know who wants that or uh what are we gonna do with that or you know it's it's it, it, yeah it's it's hard for people to to really see the vision of what it is. I think that's one of the reasons why I've worked so hard yeah. as, I, as I could. Um, sometimes I think I should have even worked harder because we're dealing with a very abstract collection of information, but it's more significant to the way that it is that we really uh, advance our brains because again, 60 to 70% has to do with the invisible process. So I've had to be really, really, uh, rigorous about explaining certain things and in the other book the big book there it's funny because there's certain things that that are repeated but it's kind of like a fractal <laughs> so it's so you start out seeing the, the 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 curve and the fractal you know you see the yeah. you see the the julia set in the math but then you know it's going to continue but you know so it continues in that patterns but but, you know, the next time you see it around, you know, when I'm talking about intuitive intelligence again, it's like there's two or three things added to it. And then the next chapter now we're talking about how quantum information processing happens in the brain. So do we have all those things before it became and now we're we're, you know, we're adding another Julia set. We're multiplying. We're compounding the numbers again. You know. You yeah, I, know so I know exactly <laughs> what you're saying. It's beautiful. Okay. I've never heard it put that way before, but it's beautiful. I never yeah, put it that way before exactly, <laughs> but that's really the way that's really the way to explain that book, which yeah. is why it ended up being like 500 pages. So um, so you're adding one thing and then you're adding the other thing and then you're saying the other thing again. And then and then there, there'll be a chapter that seems like it's coming out of nowhere. It's like, oh, you know, cause it's like in the middle of the book, like, why are you talking about E equals MC squared? But it's on the front of the book cover to begin with. I guess I should show it to you, too. Yeah. If, yeah. Let's see him. This this one's called. This was the first book I wrote. Um, let me see. Can you see that? That that's better, right there. Perfect. Yep. Connecting yeah. the dots. Yeah. And give us a synopsis uh, of that one. What's the first one yeah, about again? So everybody can know. Right. So, 
Um, this was, in some ways it's easy to explain, in some ways it's hard. So the first third of this book is explaining what cognitively correct is. Um, mm -hmm. It's very, very brief. Um, this, this, the third, third of the book is just lists of what I, uh, typical cognitively incorrect things that people say, and then a sample of what would be cognitively correct. Now, I did a second edition on this book because I wanted to improve some of the cognitive. My, my motive in writing the cognitively correct things was to give people an understanding of what's cognitively correct, but it was also to give them uh, a, a, a platitude, you could say, <laughs> um, to be creative in their own ways about doing something more cognitively correct. So the, th the third third of the book, we break it up in three parts, is just lists of cognitively correct translated from cognitively incorrect or cognitively incorrect translated into cognitively correct, right? So, um, and the middle part of the book is a fictionalized interview that I did. So because when I first started writing all this cognitively correct and how insignificant the preschool brain was, I noticed when I spoke with people, they would get really sensitive and even slightly offended about what I was saying about how important the preschool brain was and what preschool education really is. So I figured rather than write stuff that would be uh, difficult for people to reconcile, I decided to create a fictionalized interview with these two adults who are interviewing a four-year-old. And so she's four. So she's just going to tell it like it is. That's all there is to it. <laughs> so that's what the middle part of the book is. And so she's speaking from the heart and mind of a, a four-year-old, but she's speaking with the intellect of an adult because she's just laying it out on the line. Like this is this is the way it is, but even you know so that's limited in its way. So I'm having my website redone, mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, a, a really brilliant woman. Her name is um, Charlene Brown. She has an outfit called Brooklyn Custom Design. She's very good at what she does. She understands how media works with websiting, <laughs> and. Um, and she's helped me understand a lot. So um, we're going to be featuring the books on the website. We want to sell them. This one originally you could get on Amazon, but you know Amazon likes to steal people's stuff. Yeah. They're, 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 they're pirates. They anyway, are. Uh, we, we <laughs> so my second edition can only be gotten from the website, and we're we're still deciding whether we're going to put it in PDF form only or. You know, if we're going to do it as an audio book, but, you know, we sell it for a couple of dollars on the website and that will be fun and fine. But we'll, we'll sell the second edition where I improved it. And the, the third book I wrote is a little black book over there. <laughs> I think you'd like that one. Yeah. But I, I, I seriously doubt that there's anything in that book that you probably have never thought about. It would probably be presented a little bit more in a way that's along the lines of cognitiveology. Hold on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. However, I think it will deal with a lot of the concepts that you probably challenge in society. 
So it's called Collecting and Connecting the Dots. The subtitle is Human Heart and Brain Version 10.0. So it's really sort of like, you could almost say in some ways it kind of takes the mickey out of society and the way that we trust this, the broken systems in place. And mm. those are the versions for like, so, you know, people want to improve society and human progress, but then they want to use these systems that are even more broken that we have put our trust in politics, economics, money, or whatever. Um, and so it kind of challenges that um, to, to a great degree. But this is the Dots Connected, uh, the subtitle, big, fat, fat, 500-page <laughs> hardcover book. <laughs> And um, it's how uh, it specifically outlines how intuition uh, has, you know, it says what does childhood have to do with adulthood plus intuition's role in fulfilling full human brain potential. And where's the best spot to get all those the, the, books? Sorry. Well, that's like I said, we're going to feature them on the on the website, but we right. also have to then also do the next part. It's like if I'm cooking a buffet for you and, you know, I'm still doing, I'm just doing the appetizers and I got to get to the right. main course here. Mm -hmm. So, and I may have the dessert ready and I may try to fool you by saying, I have appetizers <laughs> and desserts, you know, <laughs> well, the main course is still hiding in the oven because we forgot to turn it on. But, you know, this is, this is a heavy do. This book can be used as a reading book, a reference book, a study book, any of those. Um, yeah. But it's a 500-page hardcover book. And um, so to get any of these books, if people want them in print form, that's one of the things that we have to do in conjunction with getting the books available on the website. We do have to find one of those direct order print mm. things um, where... They get something for the printing and then, but we own everything and it's not going through some other publishing or distribution thing. So, um, and this is the dots disconnected. We still have to prop better design a cover for this one. But, um, right. yeah. So I that's, like it. That, thank you. Thank you very much. And um, so, so it's, it's a, it's a, it's a slow, it's been a slow process for us because we finally, when I, when I mentioned this particular, uh, I know I gave her a free plug there. Um, when I mentioned this particular web designer, she was the first person that we, um, that we were, that we had encountered where we were really able to explain what it is that we do. We wanted it to be very clear that uh, when people stumbled upon us or looked, deliberately looked for us, for our website, that uh, the last thing that they would be impressed with was that, is that we were just some other kind of uh, therapy or healing outfit. And all those things are great, they're needed, but that is not what we do. That has nothing to do with what we do. We want to set the record for real brain development straight from the beginning, which I think you seem to very well understand at this point. Yeah, thank you. It's yeah. it's always a lot of fun. I always feel like I come away with more questions, which is like is a good sign of a conversation. I feel like I mm -hmm. come away learning something. I, I really enjoy talking to you, and I'm hopeful that is everyone who listens to this enjoys it as much as I do. And I, yeah, I I'm hoping the website's done soon so that people can order the books. And right, I know I would how like old? To read. 
how old did you say your kids were now? My daughter's nine. Your my daughter's daughter just turned nine. Right. You just have your daughter, right? I do, yes. yes. Yes, because you spoke to me about the other stuff. Um, so and um do you and you and your wife take turns with spending like individual time with your daughter, or you do it always together, the three of you, or do you switch around or we do, you we make do sure all you, of it pretty much. And then you, my daughter's really lucky because she goes to a Reggio school. So when you brought oh, that good. up, I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Reggio's really wonderful. Really, really wonderful. She goes to Reggio school. I mean, Hawaii's a perfect place. And when we first talked about, you know, setting up a thing where we could teach teachers and do, we thought, oh, Hawaii would be a really great place. We'll have yeah. people come and they'll do a week-long seminar and we'll teach them cognitively correct and all that kind of thing. So yeah, Reggio, uh, the great setting in Hawaii for yeah. Reggio. So um, yeah, that's, that's, that's very comfortable news. And, and, and I guess that, you know, you studying uh, the Reggio system is one of my favorite too. Um, I mean, of all those ones that I mentioned, I, I think I like Bank Street and Reggio best but i probably would pick reggio if i was going to school again as a kid and someone said any mini money more which one do you want to do I'll, I'll go to reggio school yeah yeah okay so um yes i think that it's what time is it where you are now is it lunchtime um, it is i think it's like two o'clock over here i think Did we're you five have hours uh i i have eaten a little bit of lunch but not not a whole lunch i just had some, like a little burrito before we started like a little burrito a hawaiian burrito <laughs> or a mexican burrito a or breakfast a, a, burrito a howling like burrito or a portuguese burrito yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh okay um i did not have well it's dinner time here so i had yes. brunch but i did nice. not have any so i think probably both of us need to go fuel our brains with some right. food because the brain right. loves food right and i am going to uh thank you very much for pleasure's um, all mine for letting me uh be on your show today and uh perhaps we can revisit this again another yeah. time of and course. um i would love it if your daughter came on the show <laughs> Yeah, sometimes she'll be here. Maybe on, we might have to do a weekend show. She's usually yeah. gone at school. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's fun. You know, I think people have never done that enough. I think it's fun when people bring their kids, especially when I'm talking about brain development. I kind of wish that people would bring one of their kids along, you know, and I know people think that their kids are going to be fooling around. That's okay. I love that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but sometimes kids, you see, the thing is that a lot of times adults ask all the wrong questions. And I have to nicely tell people, hmm. The real question is, but kids ask the right questions. And yeah, they, they just do. listen and they formulate questions later on, or they, they like to, um, they like to talk to their parents about what they've heard. It happens sometimes, yeah. but uh, uh, thank you so much again. I'm going to say good night and good afternoon. Thank you very much. Well, I appreciate it. It was a great pleasure thank talking you. to you and I really enjoyed it. And it's, I get to learn a lot. So thank you yeah, so much good. for your time. And, I uh, hope we'll, that we can speak again sometime. Absolutely. I'll reach out to you after this and I'll send you some copies and you can do what, yeah. whatever you like with them. So <laughs> awesome. Oh, before we go, where can people find you or do you have anything coming up that you might want to talk about in the future? Like any um, guest spotting or I think right now I think that I'm mostly directing people to LinkedIn and to my posts okay. there. Um, as I said, but I have a podcast. 
So that's okay. the main thing. I mean, the podcast is really substituting for the books right at this point. And my podcast is called Got Brain, G-O-T, capital G-O-T, capital B-R-A-I-N. So no, no space between the got and the brain. And the subtitle or to, to search for it properly is The Mechanics of Diversification and Intuition. So that's the best place to find me right now until our website or what's that when it be up, we'll still keep the same old name, which is www.ccthedots.com. Um, so, and then there's also, if people listen to the podcast at all, there's another, I guess, uh, email. If people want to send in questions or ideas or, like me to talk about like you said you wanted me to talk more about neuroplasticity so i did that yeah so well the next time i do a podcast somebody asked me about neuroplasticity i said well actually uh george and i talked about right. that so <laughs> go to george's show <laughs> that would be more fun um okay so and i will make sure that next time i will be up here where you can see me a little bit i will Perfect. sit on my knees there we go. I'll sit there like this the whole time. And then we'll just It's hard on your back to do that. Oh, uh, you know what? I find it a little easier for my back. Um but um yeah. I I spent years always sitting like this. Actually for a couple of months I couldn't because I had sprained my back, but now it's healed. Mm. It, that was because of the snow. I mm. misjudged. I misjudged. We had three layers of snow as you were talking about snow before. It was very strange and I I miscalculated how much to bend my knees. I ended up spraining my back at the oh, beginning wow. of this year. Yeah, never again. If we get snow like that again, which I hardly anticipate for us to get this year at all, because it looks like we may have a mild winter. But if I get any snow, I'm just going to send it over to you <laughs> in Hawaii. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> all right, you take care. Okay. Thank um, you so much, Carla. I'll talk to you I'm soon. Have a great rest of your night. You right. too. Bye. Right. Aloha.
Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.